Farming Programme with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. We're looking at soil today, including an upcoming new movie called Six Inches of Soil and some important soil health tips. You can have too much of a chemical, you can have unbalances, which means that crops don't respond properly. You get minerals which actually antagonise each other. So you've got too much of one, the other ones don't work. So we need to make sure we're getting it right. And new hair coursing legislation has come into force this week. Kind of the headline changes, if you like, are that when an offence is prosecuted for hair coursing, the powers that are available to the court have increased. And of course, the grain and livestock market reports, including Lincolnshire's Partney Fair and the weather for the week to come. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week, helped by a little bit of rain, although a lot more's needed. Welcome new legislation has hit the statute books this week, aiming to get tough on hair coursing. Chief Inspector Phil Vickers from Lincolnshire Police. What's changed in the new legislation? The kind of the headline changes, if you like, are that when an offence is prosecuted for hair coursing, the powers that are available to the court have increased. So typically in the past where a, a conviction resulted in a fine, maximum that we were seeing was maybe £900 or, or thereabouts. Really want to emphasise, not critical of the courts, they were using the powers and the guidance that was in place for them. But that's been really frustrating, particularly when Lincolnshire Police, for example, have been seizing dogs at every opportunity and the cost of doing that can be in the thousands of pounds. Now courts have the power to impose an unlimited fine so uh, they can look at the impact on the victim. They can look at the, the benefit that the offenders have, have seen um, and can impose a fine that more properly reflects the, the bigger picture, if you like. The new legislation also gives courts the power to impose a prison sentence of up to six months. Um, so that's a big step in the right direction. There's a couple more things as well. So um, from a policing point of view, Lincolnshire have... Uh, have been quite determined in seizing dogs at every opportunity. But there's a a significant cost of kenneling those dogs for often a prolonged period. What the the new legislation does is it gives courts the powers to recognise that cost, that cost that traditionally has fallen to the taxpayer, and to impose those kenneling costs on top of any fine or prison sentence that that might result from the conviction. And uh, it's not uncommon that in Lincolnshire we might have seen somebody convicted and received maybe a a £400 fine, but actually the kenneling costs might have been in the thousands of pounds. So um, that's a big step in the right direction. It's a a hugely impactful tactic. You know, you're taking away the the tool, the dog that's being used for the offending uh, and, and really impacts not just on the force that's seizes the dog but but more widely it makes rural communities safer Uh, there's one other power and i I think this is a real big one for us that courts will now have the power to disqualify offenders on conviction from keeping dogs for an indeterminate period so the court may say that it's appropriate to disqualify somebody from keeping dogs or being responsible for the upkeep the the welfare of dogs for three years five years or, or whatever the court sees is proportionate and appropriate well as a power, um, that's something that we as police can enforce, and we already do, where people are convicted of cruelty offences, for example, um, but it makes those offenders toxic in that offending community, that you don't want to be out haircoursing with somebody who's got a disqualification order, uh, because what comes with that is, is a greater penalty for you and a far greater risk of losing the dog as well. So um, there's a raft of changes that, that come into place for the courts, um, and they're really positive. They'll have real impact 
Um, and we already know that offenders are talking about it and, um, and, and they really aren't looking forward to this next coming season. So big step in the right direction. The changes come as a result of a campaign led by the CLA and the NFU. Regional Director of the CLA, Kath Crowther, you must be really pleased finally to see this in place. Yeah, fantastic news. It's a significant victory for the CLA and all the other organisations that we've been working with to lobby for tougher punishments. So great that it's been brought in now in advance of the hair coursing season. I suppose the difficulty always with hair coursing is it's a very rural, I was going to call it a sport, well, could just call it a crime, and it's very, very difficult to police such a large rural area as Lincolnshire, isn't it? Very difficult. You know, Lincolnshire is a very large county. It's great that, um, you know, we were successful in lobbying for a rural crime team in Lincolnshire, but they've got a huge area to cover. They need the right equipment to be able to go after these uh, people who, sadly, um, the courses are, are not nice people. And we need anyone who sees here coursing happening to be calling 999 if it's actually happening, 111 if it's after the occasion. The important thing with the new powers is we need the offenders to actually be caught. So we're now in frequent contact with all the police forces, including Lincolnshire, to make sure that they have the right resources to catch the offenders so that the new powers can be utilised and also that the magistrates understand the new powers and they understand the fact that Hair coursing isn't just a few dogs chasing some rabbits. It is a serious crime, often associated with wider criminality. Thanks, Kath. Kath Crowder, CLA Regional Director, and to Lincolnshire Police Chief Inspector Phil Vickers. Great to see the legislation in place. Let's hope it really makes a difference. To the fields we go now. Our crop doctor, Sean Sparling, is enjoying a well-deserved break, but we're going to focus on soil this week and next. Perhaps the most important asset a crop farmer has. Do we look after after our soil as well as we should. There's many theories and opinions, but what's the best way to keep it healthy? Let's hear from the Soil Association's senior farming advisor, Jerry Alford. Jerry, I'll ask you for some soil health tips in a moment, but can we start with testing? We don't really know if we've necessarily got a problem with our soil unless we test it, but how easy is that to do? As soil testing itself is is a relatively simple process of just taking a sample, sending it off to be tested. What is really useful to do now, what we're learning is we need to get soil organic matter tested as well, because the organic matter is such a proxy measure for how healthy your soil is. The chemical elements can change. They're not necessarily reflective of what the plant's getting, but the soil organic matter is the best proxy we have for measuring that, that vague term soil health. And how do you actually measure the soil, or rather, what are you measuring? In the chemical context, we're looking for pH, which is acidity, to make sure that you've got the right conditions for plants to grow. From the chemical testing of potassium and phosphate levels and the micronutrients to make sure that the crops have what's available is in the right balance to know whether you need to be adding anything or not. We probably tend to be over applying because we're panicking or worrying. But with the soil organic matter, it is looking at the amount of carbon that's in the soil but it also gives us an indication of how water will infiltrate, how crops will respond, and the resilience of soil comes down to the organic matter. And I guess the key word in what you've just said there was balance, everything yeah. in balance. Yeah, you can have too much of a chemical. You can have unbalances, which means that crops don't respond properly. You get minerals which actually antagonise each other. So you've got too much of one, the other ones don't work. So we need to make sure we're getting it right. 
And when you talk about organic matter, what do you mean? The organic matter is, is basically the organic materials in the soil. It's the residues of roots. It's the straw that you've actually added. It's the composts, the green manures, the cover crops that you've added into the soil. It's also a measure of the biology in the soil. So there's fungi and bacteria which add to it. And they're the ones that break down those other materials into forms that suit the soil. So it's a mixture of everything. You mentioned their cover crops. Now, that's been a, a source of much discussion as to how effective they are, whether they're right, what should it be, etc. What's your view on cover crops overall? I think they're a massively positive step forward. We've always used them in organic systems. We used to call them green manures. Really, what they are is a way of making sure you've got functioning roots in the ground because they do a huge amount of good. That's where you get a lot of your structure from. Some of them are very good at rescuing those nutrients that we've applied and been wasted. They also mean that over winter, when you get heavy rain, you don't get erosion and runoff because it slows down that damage to the soil. And all in all, if you can make them fit your system, or rather you need to make them fit your system, because then they become really useful. Obviously, if you have a rotation which is all autumn sown, it's difficult to get them into your system, but it's still possible. You can actually apply put the seeds into the growing crop before you harvest. So you've already started to germinate. Just fill that little space. If it's if it's possible in your rotation, do it. And is there a, a better is there one crop that's better as a cover crop than other, or does it just depend on where you are, what your soil is, whatever what other crops you're planting and so on? Yeah, obviously, the, you, you want to be making sure that you're not putting in cover crops that create a disease or pest risk to the crop you want to grow in your system. Linseed, which I know is a crop that a lot of people grow, but it's really, really good for roots. You know, it's a really brilliant rooting um, crop. Um, other crops like buckwheat, phacelia, they're deep rooting. Buckwheat, for example, is really good at sort of going down deep and, and harvesting those nutrients which are deeper in the ground, bringing them up to the surface. So again, you can reduce your inputs in other directions. So it's also, it also suppresses weeds. So it has a double whammy in that one. It has another better role. And many farmers have moved away from the traditional method of ploughing fields towards no-till, min-till. What do we need to take into account before we move in that direction? I think the line that people take on this one is sort your soil first and the drill will come later. If you sort of assume that you could just put a direct drill in and life will be perfect, then there's a lot more that goes on before that. You know, the cover crops are really, cover crops and direct drills have to go together. You know, because you you creating that um, surface structure whereby you've got that porosity, you've got the water infiltration, you've got that organic matter and the bugs and bacteria and fungi working in those top few inches. If you're going to move away from a plow system, then that's what you need because the, the seed needs to be planted in, in in the sort of space it wants to be planted in. So if you're not having cover crops, well then you might as well carry on bashing the sort of death the way you've been doing before. So get the soil structure right before you look at changing the system. It, if you're in a mint-till type system, mix up those cover crops into the top surfaces for a year or so, because then it means that the surface and the soil is already ready for what you're doing. You know, soil is a living thing. If you suddenly change your diet tomorrow, what would happen? And I think we've got to think about soil in the same sort of sense. I guess your advice to anybody, any farmer, would largely depend on soil type, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can't sit here glibly and say this will work for you because you might be on a sandy soil, you might be on a peat soil, you might be on a clay soil. Everything has to be taken in balance as to what works on your farm. One size fits all does not work in farming. 
there's an attempt to impose that from all sorts of directions, but you have to work to what works for you. And Jerry, does the Soil Association offer advice to farmers who are having problems with their soil? We as the Soil Association, we don't just advise organic farmers. The advisory team I work with, we talk with all farmers. Often they're saying to us, how can we incorporate your organic type practices into my non-organic farm? And we're happy to have those conversations because we are sort of having to revert back a little bit to what we do and to learn from our experiences. And we're more than happy to share because we want to steal from from you guys the tricks that you're doing if we can do them without the inputs. So it's a balanced thing. So talking to farmers who are already doing it and find out how they're doing it. Someone with a similar soil, someone who's making the changes, pick his brains because we aren't competing with each other in reality because we're, we're actually should be working together a lot more. Many thanks to Jerry Alford, Senior Farming Advisor at the Soil Association. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. The food system we have today is a miracle and a disaster, so said last year's National Food Strategy. An upcoming documentary film, Six Inches of Soil, looks at regenerative farming through the eyes of farmers and communities seeking to transform how our food is produced and consumed. Whilst you may or may not agree with his viewpoint, let's hear about the movie from Dragonlight Films' Colin Ramsey. The film follows the journey of three farmers across England, um, across a whole year, uh, on their regenerative journey. So they're all coming from different backgrounds, different types of farms. So we've got a farm in North Lincolnshire. They're, they're a large arable farm. We've got a market garden here in Cambridgeshire. And we've got a livestock farm on Bodmin Moor. Um, and they're all at different stages of their agroecological journey and trying to bring nature back onto the farms in different ways. So we follow them on their journey. Then we hear from different experts um, in UK food farming policy about what farmers can do to transition and then what we as the public can do to support that transition. What's actually behind this film then? What sparked you to make the film in the first place? Yeah, so I got commissioned to make a short film with Cambridgeshire County Council back in 2020 and I was visiting one of the farms. I, had, I didn't even know what regenerative agriculture was and I didn't really know about this revolution going on in farm. I was on a small farm out, outside of Cambridge, and it was the middle of winter, and he had you know, seven-foot-tall sunflowers and a huge cover crop in his field. The soil was moist and lush, and you could smell the vitality. And it was incredible, all this nature. And then we went to his neighbor's field, a conventional farmer, and we dug up there, and you know, the soil came out like a house brick. It was solid, compacted, and, and no life in it. So in that one moment, I saw two very different systems on the same soil, and, you know, one was full of nature and life and the other was just, you know, solid and lifeless. So for me, that, that was the penny drop moment, okay. the genesis of this film. And what are the film's aims? What message are you aiming to get across in the film? Yes, yeah, so we're trying to give a voice to farmers primarily. So give young people a voice. Um, it's really hard to break into farming at the moment. There's lots of challenges um, to get access to land, etc. So giving a voice to farmers. Show the audience the wonder of soil. It's called the Soil Food Web Complex. And there's... All life um, relies on it. You've got a whole ecosystem of soil, so we need to protect it and look after it because this, our soils are in crisis, um, and, and globally it's a huge problem as well. It's not just in the UK. And then we want to kind of bust a myth of food scarcity. There not being enough food to go around without industrial farming. So there is enough food to go around if we do certain things. And um, you know, these, these systems of farming, these nature-based systems of farming, can deliver yields as high as conventional farming and bring nature back onto farms and, and help heal our soils as well. Um, and we want to take people on a journey and, and, and bring them into a world of farming which perhaps they haven't seen before as well and get them excited about that. And then they can be, feel empowered to take actions themselves as well. 
And who's the target audience for this? Is it farmers or is it the general public or is it both? Uh, it's both. So there's the farmers. We want to target farmers that are transitioning to nature-based farming or thinking of doing it. And they just need a little bit of a shove um, and show them that this can be done at scale as well. It's the public. I don't like to use the word consumers. I hate the word consumers. So the general public, we all buy food. We're all engaged in this process. So we, we, we choose to buy from supermarkets or local markets. We can choose to buy seasonal and we can choose to eat less of certain things, like eat less meat. This isn't an anti-meat film. We can choose to eat less meat, but better meat. And all these choices, you know, multiply up and make a big difference. And then the third group, uh, third audience group is the, you know, the policy piece. So that's governments, local councils, um, you know, national bodies that incentivize farmers to do the right thing. Because um, it's not their fault. They've just been incentivized in different ways. And that's now, you know, an issue for us. You know, this this is about building resilience on farms as well. And, um, creating shorter supply chains, which is both good for the farmers and good for the planet and good for us, the public. And I'll, I'll play devil's advocate slightly here. This will come at a cost, surely. And does the public care enough to pay the extra cost for regenerative farming? Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really interesting question. Now. I mean, what we're seeing now is, you know, fertiliser five times the price of what it was. So that's completely unsustainable. Um, and, and all the chemicals that rely on those fossil fuel-based products are also going up. So the cost of inputs is increasingly high. So, you know, nature-based farm techniques don't use all those inputs. That's one thing. And also, over the long term, you're going to see comparable yields. That's what we're seeing in the farm and the conversations we're having. Um, in the short term, there's always a bit of pain, of course, when you transition. And I think it's just incentivizing farmers and supporting farmers in that transition as quickly as possible. And farmers were addicted to cheap processed food. And there's no reason why you can't have healthier foods, you know, at the same cost, or maybe slightly a little bit more, but then you know that that money is going to a farmer um, and they're being properly compensated and they've been under, undervalued and underpaid for a long, long time. And so it's about reorientating that market towards um, nature-based farming and, and localism as well and community as well. So there's lots of things that we can do and create you know, a circular system where everybody benefits, really. Thanks, Colin. There's more about the project at sixinchesofsoil.org. Next week, we'll hear from one of the farmers whose story the film tells. Any comments? Email farming at linksfm.co.uk. To the markets we go now, a busy week for Louth Livestock Market with the usual Monday sale and Friday's Partney Fair. Morning to auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Good morning, Steve. This week's weekly roundup from Louth starting with Monday the 1st of August sees prime steers sell to £1,507 for F. Wallace & Sons of Biscuthorpe won 260 pence per kilo for J&S Brooks of Strubby. Prime heifers top at 230 pence per kilo for J.E. Holden and gross £1,257 for H. Fotheringham and Sons. That wraps the cattle up. Moving on to the lambs, which sees an all-in average of 242.49 pence per kilo with the top this week for H. Smith and Sons of Theddlethorpe at £144 per head and the pence per kilo section topped by E.J. Benj at 317 pence per kilo. On to the cool ewes, and a very, very similar number forward, sees a top for the Shaw Brothers of Binbrook at 160 pounds per head, to leave an all-in average of 102 pounds and 99 pence. That wraps Monday's market up. This week also saw our first special show and sale of breeding sheep and store lambs, formerly partly fair, which took place on Friday, with a tremendous show of 1,232 sheep on offer, which would be one of the larger entries seen for some years, and a tremendous trade from start to finish with plenty of barriers broken and records made. 
The show was kindly judged the breeding sheep by the Crowder family, uh, so a huge thanks to Mark and James for doing that. And the store lambs and new lambs were kindly judged by Mr. Alan Peck of Norwich. Starting with the MV accredited Tups, which saw the champion and first place uh, shearling or older ram go to Solaby Charolais with the three shear Charolais ram, which sold away to the day's leading price and also probably a market record for some time of 1,200 guineas and making its way home with Emily Skamen of Saleby. Breeding rams all in average 784 guineas. The non-accredited rams top for DJ Summers and Sons of Gainsborough at 800 guineas, while the MV accredited breeding gimmers topped at 250 guineas for T. Blythe. Moving outside and onto the non-accredited sheep, as already mentioned, the tups were topped by DJ Summers at 840 guineas. The breeding females were topped by Peter Robinson, regular vendor, selling to a high of 218 pounds for a pen of Texel Cross gimmers. Ewe lambs were topped by A&N Spillman of Freethorpe at £162 per head. And the store lambs, which saw a tremendous show, topped for the first prize in Champion Pen from Middleton Brothers at £98 per head to leave an all-in average of £79.89. Huge thank you to everyone that's been and supported this week, both buyers and vendors. We look forward to seeing you all tomorrow where we're back on to our regular uh, weekly sales of prime and cool cattle and sheep. This is Oliver Chapman from Masons and Louth Market. Thank you. Thanks, Oliver. And with our weekly look at the grain markets, Openfield's Alice Killam. Good morning, Alice. Morning, everyone. This report may find some of you taking a breather, having finished harvest, and some of you still getting stuck into combining. We could be in for a quieter month than usual, but I have no doubt you'll all find ways to keep yourselves busy. Weeked for this week, a combination of news that the first shipments have left Ukraine and that the US may get some much-needed rain before the hot weather arrives gave ag charts a negative start to the week. Unsurprising news from the EU Commission regarding the struggling EU maize ratings. No cheap maize would strongly support wheat once we get out of this harvest pressure. The UK could hopefully gatecrash the EU export party and as our quality is good in terms of moisture and bushel, we hope to see a stronger export market. On milling premiums, it is still early days, but the UK millers are continuing to do bake tests on UK new crop to decide whether the lower proteins are usable. The news is seemingly positive so far. This would allow them to squeeze the premium, but may also increase the claim structure on the lower proteins. Time will tell. We need to be patient to let markets evolve and find their feet. Currently, the consumer has good cover and is largely still moving their old crop. Much will depend on their cover further forward and if they must compete with an export programme. This may shake up both the feed and milling market in the future. Ukrainian grain starting to leave Odessa has been in the headlines also. This is of course a bearish story for those looking for a bull market, but the pace is slow. This week has seen just one vessel, a 26k shipment of maize to Lebanon. We are some way from the 20 million metric tonnes being quoted as the saviour to solve rising food prices, but three more are being reported to be ready to leave today. There is also an argument that ships leaving the Black Sea might not be in a hurry to return, but for now the headlines are that exports are happening. Barley for this week, Denmark has harvested 25% of its spring barley crop, and unfortunately for the UK, the quality is excellent. Yields are above average and in some cases reaching the same 8, 9 or even 10 tonnes per hectare that we are enjoying in the UK. With no rain forecast short term, we are on track to compete with the second earliest harvest since 1976. 
Early molting premiums are under pressure. Not every sample is excellent, but the molster has seen enough good samples to be assured that £80 per tonne premium might be too much. Early reports are that Scandinavian barleys are good. This is early days, so let's not get too carried away, but you see my point. All seed rate markets particularly fell badly in the early stages of this week, as the French Matif followed US beans lower, with the expected rain across the eastern US maize and soybean belt. You could also add to that some profit-taking after the near 10% rise the week prior. The hot and dry forecasts over key soybean growing areas of the US Midwest during a critical growing month have been eroding harvest expectations. Plantings were below expectations this spring as farmers turned to corn, adding to the pressure. However, forecasts for rain in the US Midwest over the next week should provide short-term relief to stressed crops. Prices for this week, feed wheat, September 246 to 256, October 248 to 258, November 249 to 259, with milling wheat premiums around the 35 to 40 pound mark. Barley, August 217 to 227, September 223 to 233, October 229 to 239, and January 23, 231 to 241. For molting premiums, please speak to your open field FBM. All seed rate, August 497 to 507, September 501 to 511, October 504 to 514, November 507 to 517. Thanks, Alice. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. High pressures, high temperatures, plenty of sunshine and little, if any, rain this week. Just light and variable breezes to start the week. Highs up to 27 on Monday, likely to hit 30 on Tuesday. Still dry, but a few degrees cooler on Wednesday under cloudier skies. And a slightly brisker wind in the mid-teens MPH and from the northwest on Thursday. Highs back up to 28, 29 to end the week. Well, that's it for this week. More on soil and Sean's on his soapbox next week on the Farming Programme. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.